<sighs> okay, here we go. Alex Wished is a performance and wellness coach, entrepreneur, athlete, and mental health activist. As a survivor of major depression, Alex has created his own non-for-profit called Fitness for Mental Health, and through that, he aims to break down the stigma of mental illness, empower individuals who are struggling with adversity, and create a platform to educate young adults on holistic ways to prevent mental illness. He joins me on this episode to talk about the role that exercise played in his own story. My name is Brock Armstrong. It's time to get your second wind. But before we get started. As you've probably noticed, this podcast is no longer in production, but there are so many people who are still listening to each episode and reaching out to me for advice and help and support that I've decided to keep the dream and this podcast alive, which means I'm paying a few maintenance fees out of my pocket. And I don't mean to make this sound like a woe is me kind of affair, because it is indeed a pleasure to have created something that is being appreciated. But if you felt so inclined, you could go to brockarmstrong.com slash coffee to, yes, as it sounds, buy me a virtual coffee. And since coffee is easily my biggest device, I'm what you would call a coffee snob, if you buy me a coffee, I can pay my hosting fees with all the coffee money that I save. So win-win situation here. So go to brockarmstrong.com coffee and help keep this podcast and my fancy coffee habit alive. That's brockarmstrong.com coffee. I really want to start with why the heck would anyone, but specifically you, do 1,000 strict pull-ups, 2,000 push-ups, and 3,000 squats, all while wearing a 20-pound vest? Why the heck would you do that? Great question. Um, one, I mean, I'm a little bit of a person that's out there with fitness in general, and I'd love, I love a good mental challenge. Uh, but outside of that, during the pandemic there were no competitions. And mm. I've always been a big athlete, really big into fitness. And so I decided to create my own competition with myself. And in addition to that, I wanted to do something where I could raise money and raise awareness. And this competition, my personal competition, was an opportunity to raise awareness for mental health because mm. the vest itself uh, was symbolizing the weight of mental illness. And the event was also the day before Memorial's Day and we were able to raise about $30,000 to help veterans in mental health. Wow. So you actually, you went online, promoted this, and people just donated in terms of like, do they think you're going to succeed or not? Or was it a dollar per pull-up? Or how did they do that? Yeah. So for the overall event, basically, we, we went around, asked a lot of families, family, friend, um, people of social media to help contribute for the cause. Uh, we worked with uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. Um, they're a group that leverages community and fitness to help uh, veterans overcome challenges with mental health. And it was regardless if I were able to do it or not, the money was coming in Great. and the effort to accomplish the goal. Yeah, that makes sense. You wouldn't want to have it hinging on like if you pulled your rotator cuff halfway, halfway through, it's like, oh, well, veterans, you're <laughs> screwed. You don't get the money anymore. That would be that would be pretty, uh, pretty weak. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, for me in these fitness feats, this, this was the first of more to come. For me, I set these big 
tasks, these big goals, but it's less about accomplishing them. And it's more about what the people I inspire along the way and what I learn. And if I accomplish the goal while I'm doing it, that's honestly a plus. And I mean, I train for it physically. I'm prepared, mentally I'm prepared, but it's really about inspiring people to go beyond and achieve something greater than themselves. Right. I mean, the the symbolism of the twenty pound vest is a is a perfect example. Like that's, yeah. It really becomes not about doing the thousand pull ups, two thousand push ups, and three thousand squats. It's it's the the symbolic gesture of of doing it. I I really like that. Now clearly you are a very fit fellow because you're able to do all of those things, and I can see you on on our teleconferencing here. Now, were you always an active person? Like, what was your childhood like? Were you did you have to get fit just recently, or were you one of those people who's just sort of been active and fit their whole lives? I would say it's been. There's times where I've been very active and fit, and there's times where I've been a lot less so. So I wouldn't say it's been a straight straight course. Um, I don't think any of us are. <laughs> that's that's a pretty common thing. When I was a kid, uh, I was actually overweight, and I used to get made fun of a lot for being overweight. Oh. And I actually hit a challenging point where it got to the point where actually I developed an eating disorder. So about a year of my life, I battled an eating disorder and there wasn't, you know, my parents tried to send me to a therapist, all this stuff. And she was like a 70 year old woman couldn't even like, how could I, you know, come up with any type of relationship with this person. Mm -hmm. But the way I overcame the challenges was getting into fitness and putting on muscle and you know, seeing the advantage of, of getting stronger and taking care of my body. And that's where it started to evolve along with, um, I've always had ADHD and I always would run around. My dad would try to get me doing chores at the house or we also lived on the boat during the summer and I just, I would never stay still. So I had to put the energy some in some direction. I actually didn't, I wasn't aware that you were, a, would you say you were an obese child or just, just a little overweight? I would, I, w- I wouldn't, the question of obese, I would say that is was, a, yeah, that's yeah. a hard <laughs> line to walk with kids. There. I was definitely a bit overweight when I was, when I was younger. Um, and that was more in like elementary school going into the beginning of middle school, but yeah, no, I was definitely, definitely overweight and definitely had my share of getting made fun of. That particular time period is very um, formidable. Like that's, that's when we form a lot of our attitudes, a lot of our beliefs and sure. a lot of our habits. In your experience as being a, an overweight kid in elementary school, what was your relationship like with exercise? Did you have any formative moments that you can pinpoint? And the reason I ask this is I think a lot of people do develop some bad attitudes or some some poor relationships with things like food and movement early on. And it, it can be very directly traced to a particular teacher or a particular yeah. parent or alloparent. Do you have any, any experience with that? Well, along with being overweight, you know, the reason behind that and being made fun of, you know, I I would go home and eat food Mm. as a way to soothe myself emotionally. And that's why I ended up gaining weight and becoming overweight. You know, outside of that were the unhealth. I mean, I always ran around, you know, played sports, whether it was soccer, baseball, other activities. So I was taught to be active. But when, when I hit that edge of being made fun of enough, you know, I switched over to young age into 
becoming over exercising and over training mm. and that's where that switch kind of went in a very unhealthy direction at such a young age also right so you're both overeating and over exercising just doing everything to extreme trying to reach some sort of balance and that sounds like that was in direct response to not just the ADHD but would you say like depression anxiety issues that's tricky i didn't see myself as a young age as a depressed kid mm. i mean it was definitely more of like from social interaction. I think that was an outcome. But, you know, later on in my life, well beyond middle school and high school into my sophomore year in college, you know, at, at that point in my life, I did develop a significant depression, which changed my relationship with fitness and a lot of different healthy aspects of my life significantly. Yeah. So how did that affect you? I know people's like depression and anxiety manifests itself very differently in, in people, very different from, for myself and, and you. So how did, uh, how did it manifest for you? Yeah. So if I were to look back growing up, you know, overall, um, didn't really have a lot of depression in the winters. I would have seasonal depression though, as a kid, mm -hmm. never took any medications for it. And I would never have recognized it. It was just a time where, you know, food became more of a focus school became more of a focus in sports, but I just overall was, was less happy. And then into my sophomore year in college, I had a lot of pressure. I wanted to train and, and go into the Olympics, you know, after sailing in college, I had, I wanted to get a 4.0 in school and the pressure of all those things I put on myself. And I also had like a learning disability, dyslexia and the ADHD, all that pressure really just compounded. And it hit a pivoting point where there's one day, September 17th, you know, and it didn't really come down to one day, but this was like a big, a big moment in my life where I remember the day before being with my best friend, we hung out, we had like a drink, met some of these girls who were graduates. And that next day I went to bed and I woke up and I literally felt like my world was flipped upside down. Hmm. And from that day on in my sophomore year, uh, my depression manifested where I couldn't focus, couldn't concentrate. Schoolwork became nearly impossible. And on top of that, you know, I'm very open about this, but I was having like, you know, thoughts of wanting to end my life and, mm -hmm. and suicide. And um, peak of that moment was when I was trying to sail on nationals. And I was trying still to stay in college and, and work and, and, you know, train. And I was trying to balance these things out while doctors are giving me these medications that were supposedly going to help me and didn't really know what they were treating. But I was out there one day sailing in nationals, doing the thing I absolutely love doing that has the biggest passion in my life that brings me the biggest relief from any stressors. And all I could do is think about how I didn't want to be alive. Hmm. And that's when I knew I needed to go home and get help. Right. It's interesting that you can pinpoint both the date and that sort of happening where things happen. Because I think a lot of the time we just sort of eventually realize that we've been living our lives in a in a depressed state and we don't even identify it. But that's really interesting that you were able to to notice it in the moment. And so it sounds like you were trying some medication, you were working with some doctors. What other stuff did you try before you actually started to hone in on <laughs> on using the, sure. what did you call it? The holistic formula? Yeah, the holistic formula. Um, you know, this journey of battling with severe depression or battling with my inner demons, this went on for several years. I mean, it went to the point where in the hospital, uh, different residential programs, different doctors had multiple diagnoses. I mean, it was a pretty crazy situation. And also was one point on disability, 
where docs were telling me I wasn't going to get better. And, you know, I was treated with, you name it, all different kinds of medication, all the way to electroconvulsive therapy, which is, oh, wow. which is widely used. Um, I had multiple treatments in that ketamine therapy I did. You know, there's all sorts of these different devices out there that I've probably tried a lot of things that were very experimental to things that are very mainstream. But if you probably asked if I tried it, I probably would say yes. So it's, it was very wide, diverse, you know, things from Canada or the UK or, you know, things even outside the US. So it was, it was all sorts of things I was trying. I was pretty desperate. Yeah, I well, and I have a similar story to you, although some of those things like the, the electrotherapy I had read about when I was, it was more, more of an anxiety disorder, right. generalized anxiety disorder that I was, I was suffering from and, uh, and the ketamine, I read about both of those things, but honestly didn't have the guts to try it. And I kind of regret it in some ways because I, it may have actually helped me along, but it doesn't sound like it did a big difference for you. Not to say that it's not effective for some people, but we all have, have different things that work with our biology or yeah. our, our neurology, all of, of those factors that play into, into this. So I guess then once you tried all those things, how did you get turned on to what became sort of your ultimate, I don't want to say solution because it's never solved, but your, your ultimate treatment? I had a couple different pivoting points. Uh, one of the first pivoting points is I was at this I was at this place in Brewster, New York, where it was a residential facility, and I wasn't getting help, and there was a lot of mistreatment, and the place was eventually shut down, but it bore mental health. Oh. And these were, these were some really struggling years in my life. I got there. Um, I didn't have any money. I was, I was really not doing well. I didn't have support. And I ended up standing on a railroad track, like a, a bridge. And I thought there for a second, like I had two choices. One, I could either jump, and it could be all over, or two... I could do something right now as a catalyst to get myself better. And the first step there was, I mean, obviously I didn't jump or I wouldn't be here today, but the first step I did, which actually involves a lot of movement, I ended up walking a couple hours to get my bike, which was the only thing I owned when I was there. And then I ended up biking from like 8 p.m. to about four in the morning to a hospital, you know, New York's pretty big, through like the boondocks, through the woods, to get to leave this place because I couldn't tell them I was struggling or they literally send the police, they handcuff you and they send you to a psychiatric facility. It's, it was, it was pretty bad, but I literally biked in the woods. Didn't even know where I was going, just trusted my heart and went on this long, I guess this is one of my big first endurance feats I did, but you know, end up leaving at, you know, eight or 9 PM and got there at 4 AM with a bike that had a flat tire, a broken chain. And I got to this, <laughs> this hospital called Four Winds, which is kind of like a outdoorsy, you know, camp style hospital to help with mental health. And there I was able to help begin the process of finding myself getting back to the Boston area and understanding that like, there might be some treatment that's out there that could be helpful. But one, I don't know if there is. And two, I don't know when I'd find it. So I had to dig deep inside myself and say, Alex, you know, what can you do to empower yourself now? What do you have control over? And that's when I understood, okay, you know, I can control my sleep. I can control my food, nutrition, my exercise, what kind of exercise, how often I exercise. I can really control who I spend my time around, my environment, you know, in my community. 
and my mindset. You know, even though you might have these intrusive thoughts, there's a big piece of like waking up during the day and reteaching yourself how to think positively. Mm. And this was one of the first big steps that, you know, I put in motion to get myself healthier. And it didn't happen overnight by any means. You know, this, yeah. this was the act of marginal gains, which took several months, but slowly and surely it made a difference. And exponentially, I improved all aspects of my life. And you, my next question was going to be when people are depressed, when people are anxious, I know for myself, it was hard enough to get myself to get off the floor. Sometimes I'd be, I literally would lay in the middle of my living room floor until the very last minute that I could possibly make it to the hockey rink to play uh, a game of hockey with my team. I would lay there until the very last minute and then be like, okay, man, either go or you don't. And I'd launch myself off the floor, run down the stairs, basically get into the car, drive straight to the rink, put my gear on and get onto the, onto the ice. And that was the only way I could actually get myself to, to do these things. So it sounds like you almost had like a similar sort of thing standing yeah. on those, on that bridge and those railroad tracks saying like, okay, this is, this is the last possible moment. Either you're going to jump or you're going to, to <laughs> take this big step of, of finding the, the self healing, I guess. Is that, does, does that sum it up pretty well? Yeah. I'd say that that big step of self healing and, and as much as I wanted to feel like not responsible for my own situation, I, it was my responsibility to do everything within my power to get better. And it almost, it sounds like you gave yourself, like I said, an ultimatum almost. Do you think that was a, a motivating factor that you just sort of made a deal with yourself that you were either, you were going to deal with this situation one way or the other? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one thing I never lost during my depression was my inner innate level to of drive. Mm. Um, it didn't always come out in the best way when you're really depressed, but putting that foot in a direction, it one, it gave me a little bit of hope and it gave me direction, some type of purpose in the moment to do something, to act. Because if you just lay there and you don't have anything to feel like you don't have any control in a situation, it, it freezes you and you lose, you lose hope. So creating some type of sense of, of control and direction was very important. Now, have you ever looked into, there's something about that forward movement of walking, of cycling, of running, any, any of those kinds of activities, just that, that forward movement that has a really positive effect on, on our neurology. Have you ever looked into why that drive was to get on that bike and ride for how many hours was it? Like eight hours or something crazy? Something ridiculous. But you know, one thing kind of building off that is a concept of the idea of that momentum kind of builds momentum. Mm. And there's a concept that goes action precedes motivation. Hmm. And I think a lot of people struggle with that concept. And that was something. Yeah, it's the opposite. That's <laughs> the opposite of what most people wait for the motivation in order to take action. So you're saying take action to then promote or to, to build that motivation? Yeah, being able to, even day after day, even if you don't feel motivated to do something, putting the shoes on, getting moving, initiating the first steps can change your whole perspective and it can make you motivated. Maybe it might take a little time to build that motivation, but over time that motivation can develop. Okay, this sounds like the perfect time to get into that holistic formula that I was alluding to earlier. But first, we just need to take a quick mo moment to uh, pay our membership fees. Hey, 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 hey. 
Do you like to shop on Amazon.com and enjoy supporting this podcast? You do? Well, have I got a deal for you. If you start your Amazon shopping adventure by going to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon, I will get a small percentage of the money that you spend. And the best part is that you don't pay anything extra. This all comes out of their pockets. Take that, Bezos. So next time you buy anything on Amazon, go to brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon and shop while also supporting this podcast. I truly thank you for being a listener and for your support. That's brockarmstrong.com slash Amazon. Okay, so in on your website and in a lot of your work, you talk about this holistic formula that you developed for yourself and now you're sharing with, with other people. This is the part of your journey when you may have started working on that. Is that, is that about right? Yes, no, I, I fully agree. Okay, so... How did it come to be and and what exactly is this? One disclaimer I want to say is, you know, this was a formula. There's two pieces of the equation. This this was a formula that worked well for me. And that formula for me exists, but there's also a process to find that formula for individuals too. So there's, there's a process and there's a formula for myself. I see people, I see everyone as an outlier. I've just seen so many people face so many things and everyone's unique in some way. So figuring out the user manual for yourself and having that for your life is something that I'm a huge advocate of. So part of this user manual, I mean, going back to some of the basic fundamentals, uh, one of the elements is sleep. You know, I have people that come up to me uh, with my coaching and say, you know, how can I increase my performance, whether they're a top-notch athlete, CEO, executive, whatever it is. And the first question I always ask is, is, what's your sleep like? Because sleep is the biggest cognitive and mood enhancer there is out there. Mm. And if you're not taking care of the basic essentials, all those other little things you sprinkle on top, they're not either going to work or they're not going to be sustainable. So sleep was one of the big ones. Finding, you know, getting the right amount of sleep or finding what my body needed. Finding out what time, like what window is the best for me to sleep in and improving the quality of sleep. And not just the quality of sleep on like a perfect day, but it's learning how to tackle the basics from all angles, right? So there was a, there was a wrestler named Gable who won multiple gold medals. And he knew the reason he got the gold medals is because he knew how to do a few moves, but in any situation. Mm. And that's the same concept, mastering the basics from all levels. Outside of sleep, we look at like nutrition, I'm all about, you know, I know there's plant-based, I know there's carnivorous, there's, <laughs> you know, there's, there's all sorts of things out there. Everyone has their own, their own idea. For me, I like what I do with myself is I stripped away my diet to its basics, like more towards plants because more variety in plants help with inflammation in the body and brain. And there's been a lot of things with gut health, kind of starting with a little more plant, making sure I'm getting my protein intake. And having some animal-based protein in there and then really seeing and cutting out everything I could and then slowly implementing things back in to see, hey, does this help me or does this harm me? Hmm. So for me, like milk is something that that bothers me, doesn't agree with me. I haven't had caffeine for eight years now, nothing. I don't even have chocolate. Yeah. And holy smokes, I was with you with on the on the dairy, not with you on the caffeine, especially coffee. But so, that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So so with the caffeine piece, you know, 
I'm, I'm a fan of saying, hey, you know what? I don't see caffeine for some people as a bad thing. For me, it didn't work with me. And that's where the individual component comes in. Yeah. It would affect my mood. It would affect my sleep. And it would just make things more up and down. And so I cut every little piece out of it with, with caffeine. I do think a lot of people, though, have too much caffeine in their diets. And I actually, when I was in the hospital one time, I knew a woman that had psychosis induced from too much caffeine. Wow. Like, it can, it can be that bad. Like, it could actually do that. So, I mean, she yeah. probably had a fair amount, but yeah. You know, I love the curiosity that you're showing here. This So many times we look outside of ourselves for somebody to tell us what we should eat, how we should sleep, what kind of exercise we should do. We try to outsource that. And what you're demonstrating is having that curiosity and turning yourself into the experiment. Like, okay, how do I feel when I take caffeine out? How do I feel when I put it back? Not great. Okay, let's not do that. Dairy, same thing. That curiosity is something that I think a lot of us have lost in this world of being able to look online and find out what does Michael Phelps eat? Let's follow that. Or what what is this guru telling me that I should be having? You're the only one who really should be telling yourself what you should be eating and drinking and sleeping and exercising and stuff. So I, I love that. That's a wonderful experiment you're running on yourself. It really comes down to me wanting to create something that's sustainable in the long run. Mm. It's creating my own personal user manual. And that's what I do with people. It's less about what Michael Phelps does because we all know that he's an outlier and he's what works for yeah. <laughs> he's a freak. What works for a top Olympic athlete and his genetics and body is gonna be very different than somebody that doesn't share those same genetics and that same body. But looking and making and going off like what there's a lot of research on and making things very, very basic and then building off of that and understanding how things affect you, I strongly believe that's the direction to go. It's, it's a longer direction. I mean, it takes a little more time, but the information you gather is stuff you'll have for the years of your life to come. I love the uh, that aspect of this whole experimenting on yourself and focusing on the fact that this isn't a temporary intervention that you're you're building here. So I think a lot of us look at these ideas that we're putting together or these interventions that we're creating as like a 30, 60, 90 day program, but what you're talking about is really making this into into your new lifestyle and I know you've talked about this idea of mastery in the in the past. Can you explain that? Yeah, so so part of mastery is, you know, a little different than what people think or believe. Part of mastery is mastering the art of maintaining or the art of maintenance. So much focus in life, whether it's professional, academic, or athletic, is put on progression. If you're not progressing, you're not moving forward. Right, always putting more weight on the barbell or always putting a speed higher on the treadmill or something like that. Exactly. But what I find to be the big game changer is if you actually know how to hit a minimal level of either, you know, if we talk about fitness, like what's that minimal amount of fitness you can do to maintain your current fitness level? Because it doesn't mm -hmm. always have to be progression. And life throws you curveballs, like dealing with depression, someone's death in the family, a uh, child gets sick, uh, there's more stressors in work. When these stressors arrive, we need to know what's the minimal we can do in order to maintain because when you're climbing up that Mount Everest, you know, our life goals, the big things at the top, you know, there is that up 
but there's also those plateaus. And we want them to be plateaus instead of big drop-offs because if they're drop-offs, and if we have the idea that if we're not progressing, then we can't do anything, then you're going to create these very big up and downs and you're not, and it's going to take you a lot longer to hit those overall, that overall potential that you're capable of doing in the long run. Yeah. Every time life pulls the rug out from under you, you can't be just plummeting down into a crevasse somewhere. <laughs> you want to be able to at least maintain, if not continue to, to grow. Yeah, I agree. So it's the idea of you know, having your, your A game, A game is always good to have, have that, you know, in your yeah. back pocket, but also have that B plan and know what that B plan is, whether it's on a professional level, academic or physical level, just knowing both that plan A and plan B. My life in general, I'm a huge believer of a growth mindset. You know, I feel whatever you do, as long as uh, you learn, you're going in the right direction. And as we learn and as we, you know, write it down and literally create your own user manual. Like I have a little, I actually have a journal that says Alex Wish user manual on it. And it has all my key things. And there's things I cross out. There's things I highlight. Um, I did transition it into a computer document. But looking at that allows me to not repeat mistakes in the future. And I actually know what to do moving forward, which is only going to make me stronger and better. I love that you actually spent the time to make yourself a, a user manual. I think a lot of us do that sort of just in our heads and think, oh, well, I'm not going to forget that. But there is something to the act of actually writing it down and having it down on paper in front of you that makes it more meaningful. And and uh, and obviously, you can refer back to it later. That's a great step. So, okay. I like to get some really actionable stuff for the listeners to to be able to work sure. on. So if they want to create this user manual for themselves, what are three things that they can just start doing right now to create their their holistic formula? Well, the first step I would say is being with sleep. Um, have a sleep journal, have an aura ring, something that can record your sleep and understand your the correlation between sleep, mood, and performance and see what days you're performing and your mood's better and see how much sleep you're getting on those days, the quality of sleep when you're sleeping, and start to get several data points. And once you get those several data points, you can see the relationship between what's the optimal amount of sleep for you and how that affects you going into the next day. So that's one of the first steps, I'd say. Okay, I want to pick up on something that you said that I think uh, maybe people might miss. And you're saying to not necessarily just rely on that aura ring or that Fitbit or that Garmin to tell you how you should be feeling, but use it as a tool in conjunction with, say, a diary or something like that. So you're telling, you're using its measurements, but your perceived energy levels, happiness, feelings to determine what your particular balance is rather than relying on, rather than outsourcing it. Am I Am I saying that correctly? Am I interpreting it right? Yeah, I mean, the Aura Ring and those, you know, Fitbit and Apple Watch, they're good at recording some, you know, hard etch data. But the things it doesn't record is, you know, what is your mood like? Mm. You know, it might be able to record vagal tone and then vagal tone might be able to predict your cognition. But in reality, it's like, you know, how did you perform that day? Did you crush your board meeting? Could you not think straight? You know, were you able to get a lot of work done? Like, those are things that the Aura Ring and stuff aren't going to pick up. And those are going to let you know with the information you get from the Aura Ring or from a wearable of what's, you know, you're recording and how that actually helps you. I like that. Use the device for what it's good for, which is data, but then use your own, your own intuition, your yeah. own brain, your own heart and feelings to determine the other, the other half of that. I, I like that. 
Okay, so that's number one. What's number two? The number two thing, I would say nutrition is a big piece. So nutrition is the fundamental building blocks that our body consists of. Anywhere from muscle, connective tissue, all the way to the neurotransmitters in our brain. So on the nutrition frontier, you know, stripping things down to basics and rebuilding up, that usually means taking out processed food. Along with that, hitting the basic macros, a lot of different vegetables, leafy greens, getting some fruits, carbohydrates, right amount of protein. So just really aim for those basic elements of nutrition and build off that. I like the idea of simplifying. I think we overcomplicate because it seems more exciting and more shiny and more more seems like it's better, but less actually is more effective. Yeah, I agree too. And you know, there's 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 people who do the fasting, and there's people with all different types of diets, but it's even if you want to do something like that, it's a really good idea to have a nice clean diet and have some time on that to see how your body responds to that. There's a lot of data out there with, you know, getting certain macros, you know, eating throughout the day with some just some clean eating. And then you could take that information and then, you know, try some of the other different diets out there, but at least you have like a baseline. And I think having a baseline is really important. So would you tell people to just try, say, removing dairy for a while? Or would you say, okay, get rid of fast food, dairy, caffeine, all of this stuff at once, and then reintroduce them? What's what's sort of your protocol around that? That's a great question. For my answer, it's a little more individualized. Mm -hmm. The overall goal we're going for here is sustainability, right? We, we don't want to just do something that's going to fail. So if, if, I'm, if I was working with a person who can undertake multiple changes at once, and they have, usually for those situations, you need someone to kind of be in your corner and support you for something that big. Um, I may have them cut out a lot of things, but if there's something you're doing on your own and you don't have that support network, I then suggest cutting out one thing at a time and seeing how your body feels. Because you want to do something that's small, that's not going to be too overwhelming to your system, and that is going to be maintainable for the longer duration in time. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. Okay. So that's number two. What's what's number three? Um, three is movement. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite too. With movement, you now a lot of people, there are some people where it comes more natural and some people where it's harder. The first step with movement is developing a consistent time each day. And you don't have to be like, you know, I'm going to go into running a marathon when you haven't really done a lot of physical activity. It can be as simple as establishing this time and saying every day, 8 a.m., I'm going to go for a 30-minute walk or even a 10-minute walk just to start building that block of time. Once you do something that is within your ability um, and just putting those shoes, on, those shoes on, getting out the door um, and getting sunlight might be, even be the first step. But once mm -hmm. you do something to establish that time on a daily basis, then you build off of it. And then maybe you go for a jog and maybe that jog turns into adding some push-ups and squats and maybe that time of day then turns into going to the gym. But the idea is to build that gradual momentum and establishing that time, same time each day that allows you to be more consistent with that level of activity. Right. And that really seems to fit into what you were talking about earlier, where taking action then produces the motivation. So like you said, just putting on the shoes and getting out the door can then lead to doing a 10 minute walk, doing a 30 minute walk. Is that the way you look at it too? Yes. I mean, when some people, when I've had my worst days and I still go through depression. I'm not, you know, I don't use the word like cured. I mean, my life is, my life is good. Um, I have a lot of happy things, 
but there are days that are still really tough and there are weeks that are still really tough. What's different now is I'm able to manage it and I'm able to, when I hit these emotions, I'm able to get out of them quicker with the skills mm. and tools I have. Having an emotion and sitting in it is the choice. Not The emotion itself that comes up is not necessarily a choice, but how long you decide to sit in it is. And that's where I'll get up. And if, if I'm not feeling good, I'll be like, okay, I literally feel like I can't run right now, but I know I can put my shoes on and I know I can at least sit outside on my front step. And by doing that, I might see someone run by me, which might make me a little more motivated or getting like calling a friend um, or having them come to your house and having accountability like that can also be really, really helpful. It's an interesting word choice that you you had there about you can choose how long you sit in that emotion. And do you think there is some value to sitting in the emotion for a certain amount of time or should we just run from it or <laughs> in this case, walk from it as soon as we notice it? So that's a, another great question. I believe going into different activities with a purpose. So sometimes there is a time to sit with emotion and there is a time where there's a healing process where you need to experience it. You know, I do fitness, um, you know, I've worked on my strength. You know, a lot of some people see me as a role model. I'll, I'll be honest, there are times on the weekends where I'll go and lay on my bed and cry. And I'm happy to admit that. And I just need to cry. And I purposely go into that knowing, hey, it's a block of time I have. I'm just gonna let my emotions come out and that's okay. So I would say it's more of doing things with a purpose and you know a little bit of a goal. If you're if you're having an emotion and you're like, okay, like I need to feel this, I need to experience it, like then understand that. If it's something that you're really battling or it's just counterproductive and you need to get other things done, then those are times we use skills to potentially move us on from that emotion where we can either experience it later, or maybe it's a maladaptive behavior or something we're trying to work on and improve. Right. And sometimes that emotion, you can you have a good reason for having that emotion. But I know personally that sometimes emotions pop up and I'm like, where the heck did this come from? This isn't, I'm not reacting to a, a sad situation. And yet I still have tears in my eyes. I feel like those are the times when I need to, or when it's beneficial for me to be like, okay, I need to move on from this and and not let it take hold. And so I will do something like go for a run or go and play a game somewhere. Whereas like if there really is a, an emotional thing happening in your life, then maybe the more appropriate thing is to sit in that emotion and experience it fully. And there's along with this, you know, where I've worked with professional athletes or other individuals is the idea of radical acceptance. So we've talked about, mm. you know, sometimes we need to move on from emotion. Sometimes you need to sit with emotion and sometimes you need, you're going to have an emotion and you still need to move forward and get that big board meeting, do that fitness competition, or just move on with your day and take care of your kids. What helps in those situations is a little different is this idea of radical acceptance where let's say you are very anxious. Uh, I'll give you examples. So I know someone who was new at rock climbing and they, they couldn't get up the wall at all, right? And they were just so anxious that they literally were trembling and couldn't get up the rock climbing wall. When we got to a point, we said, you know, and they were like, I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't be anxious. Like, this is so frustrating. I said, look, it's okay to be anxious. Like, let's do the idea of like, let's accept where we are. Let's accept our emotion. Let's kind of become friends with our emotion. So it doesn't take more time and more mental space. And then we can move on with our daily task while it's still there on the sidelines, but not interfering with what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, radical acceptance is so powerful. And I think it gets misinterpreted sometimes as being like giving in or just like giving up. 
kind of thing, but it's not at all. It's what you just described where it's like, okay, well, let's accept the fact that you are anxious, but we're going to just do it anyway. We're going to continue on knowing that this is an appropriate feeling or this is an unavoidable feeling. I studied dialectical behavior theory yeah. and cognitive behavior therapy, and and that's such an important lesson for people to learn sometimes is just that this is the way the world is, and denying it or fighting against it isn't going to help you. Accepting it and then working within those parameters can really make a make or break a situation. Yeah. So, okay, well, we've got our, our three things. There's one more thing I want to share. Okay. That's really important. The bonus one. This is awesome. Um, and this is something that really made a very, very big difference in my life. It's the idea of community. Mm. Community to me was a game changer, 100% game changer. Who I surrounded myself with, do those people have the similar goals, uh, the similar ethics, morals, passions that I either have or want to have? And that is what got me back into fitness, got me back into being healthy, and really inspired me to bring my professional career and help people. I found that at a place called Brooklyn Boulders, which is a very large rock climbing gym. It was a place where I could go and have a sanctuary and make friends that were into fitness and into holistic health. And being around those people with my goals just made things so much easier. And I got so much positive support in what I was trying to accomplish. So community you know, if you're out there trying to get a walk in, trying to get some exercise in, whether it's your first time or you're even a top-notch athlete, finding those people that you can embrace to help support you towards your goal is an absolute game changer. That's a great point. And especially the difference between getting support, like having a group that's actually providing support for you, for your endeavors and your your identity and the things that you're trying to work towards, rather than this focus on having somebody that's holding you accountable, sure. that's going to somehow like punish you or or shame you if you don't show up. Support versus shame is so so much more positive and and motivating. Fully agree. Okay, so I'm sure people are very interested in learning more about Alex. So what is the best place that they can, um, if they happen to be in the car or out for a run right now while they're listening, what's the one spot that you'd want people to go to find out more about you? Um, well, where I do most of my updates is actually on my Instagram, which is wish, W-I-S-C-H dot F-I-T. Uh, I got another big fitness feed coming up, which is rock climbing the height, of Mount, the height of Mount Everest. Some really exciting things going on. Wow. Taking the next step for fitness um, and helping mental health. Is that another fundraiser? It's another fundraiser, yep. I started my own non-for-profit called Fitness for Mental Health. And so that's gradually building and we're trying to help a lot of people get into movement in holistic ways to help themselves. So are you gonna do this this climb all in one go? Or is that sort of up in the air to see how it goes? (laughs) After doing my last fitness feat, I wanted to do something that was a bit original and I like doing things that really connect to me and rock climbing was just such a, a starting point for me to really get better. And I wanted to bring it back to the place where my community was. With this feat, the goal is wearing the 20 pound vest and literally doing 581 repeats on a 50 foot wall within 24 hours. So, you know, I'll be eating while I'm moving. I'll have Belairs, have a lot of support, you know, training really hard. It's uh. The idea is, yeah, one one go. 
That's that is something. I I hope you get some film crews out there to <laughs> to film this. This is going to be really interesting to see. And and I, again, I love the the metaphor of the mental health or mental illness just being that twenty pound weight just holding you back, and you're just doing it anyway. It's a wonderful metaphor. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alex, for sharing your well your story and your your rawness with us. And I really appreciate all of it. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being on. Thank you for inviting me. This has been Brock Armstrong and Alex Wish for Second Wind Fitness. <laughs>